Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Today is Monday, July 21st, 2008, and we have an opportunity to speak with Dr. Paul Marek. We will be discussing uh, some guidelines recently published in Critical Care Medicine, focusing on the role of corticosteroids in critically ill and injured patients, specifically in severe sepsis syndrome, septic shock, and ARDS. The title is Recommendations for the, the, the Diagnosis and Management of Corticosteroid Insufficiency in Critically Ill Adult Patients, Consensus Statements from an International Task Force by the American College of Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Marek currently is a professor of medicine at Thomas Jefferson School of Medicine, or Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, and he is director of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine there. Thank you so much, Dr. Marek, for being part of the podcast today. I thought we'd begin by letting you focus, uh, as we're going to today, to just kind of walk through the guidelines a little bit and allow you to make some commentary, perhaps to expand a little bit on areas that, uh, as many of these are, quite controversial. And I, I thought we'd start out by letting you comment for a few minutes about this new term, critical illness-related corticosteroid insufficiency. Yes. Well, you know, probably before I start, what, what's kind of important to realize is that this is a really controversial topic. And that, um, or, you know, although the task force did arrive at a consensus, obviously there was much discussion and not always 100% agreement. And um, this is really based on the fact that the, the studies are, that we have are pretty small and most of them uh, are methodologically not sound. So the first idea we came up with was was the concept of critical illness related corticosteroid insufficiency and basically the reason was that it appears that many patients may benefit from exogenous corticosteroids um, despite the fact that they may have what appear to be adequate levels of uh, circulating cortisol and it's become clear that uh, in addition to um, you know, suppression of the HPA axis and adrenal failure, many patients may indeed have a corticosteroid tissue resistance, which may play an equally important role. So to account for this composite syndrome of both the adrenal gland not making enough uh, cortisol and uh, 
this concept of glucocorticoid tissue resistance, we coined the term critical illness-related corticosteroid insufficiency. And, and basically what this means is that uh, the patient, there's inadequate corticosteroid activity for the severity of the patient's illness. So there's an imbalance. And basically, as a result of this, there's inadequate down-regulation of pro-inflammatory mediators, leading to persistent elevation of pro-inflammatory mediators over time. So much like a diabetic, uh, type 2 diabetic who makes insulin, but it's relatively insufficient, Cersei arises due to the combination or either uh, inadequate cortisol or tissue resistance. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the, the odds data kind of led us down this pathway because it appears many patients with AODS benefit from steroids, although they may not be adrenally insufficient. Okay. So the next focus uh, as part of the interview was going to let you talk for a couple minutes about you focus on the diagnosis and uh, the measuring serum cortisol levels versus looking at the delta after a quartz stim test and what your thoughts are on that. Yep. So the general recommendation is that that the decision to treat patients with corticosteroids should really be a clinical one, that in most instances uh, it should be a clinical diagnosis and that uh, one should not measure serum cortisol or do an ACTH stim test um, for really the reasons that we spoke about um, in that the patient may benefit despite adequate levels. Furthermore, there are numerous problems with measuring serum cortisol. As we know, we measure total cortisol, where it's actually the biologically free, it's the free cortisol, which is biologically active. Uh, and that with sepsis and acute illness, uh, cortisol binding globulin and albumin go down. So the percentage and the actual total free cortisol goes up so that our cortisol measurement may not reflect the free fraction. In addition, what's become clear is that there may be very significant variations in serum cortisol from hour to hour, so therefore the level may depend upon the timing and that the reproducibility of the test is poor. Secondly, that with the commercial assays, there appears to be uh, enormous differences depending on which assay is used to measure the test, and it appears that um, that particularly in patients with sepsis, there may be interfering substances which give false levels. So there are many pitfalls just in measuring the serum cortisol. Um, and as we said before, that there's really not good data that one should base one's therapeutic decision on a specific serum cortisol level. Um, so that the decision really should be a clinical one. Uh, patients who have severe sepsis, uh, who have responded poorly to fluids and presses. So that's really a clinical judgment. What, what I do in my clinical practice is, is we give fluids, uh, we'll start a presser, usually norepinephrine. If the patient you know, it stabilizes on a low dose of norepi, uh, say less than a 
0.05 or up to 0.1, we won't get steroids. However, if the patient has progressive requirements for fluids and vasopressors, uh, at that point we would start uh, stress doses of steroids. So in terms of ARDS, again, it's controversial uh, with um, you know, differing opinions as to the role of steroids. Uh, one should point out, though, that in the ARDSnet study, although it was reported as a negative study, the number of ventilator-free days in the steroid group was statistically highly significant. And in fact, the, the, the increase was of a greater magnitude than in the low tidal volume study. So um, while the effect on mortality may be debatable, it certainly did increase the number of ventilator-free days. And there were some problems with the um, way steroids were given. So taking these into account, what, what, we, what I kind of recommend is that, um, you know, one doesn't use steroids in, in ARDS as one does in sepsis. In sepsis, you want to use it early, within the first 12 hours of presenta- presentation of septic shock. In ARDS, what we would do is treat the patient 24, 48 hours. And at that time, if it appears that the patient is deteriorating, uh, ventilator requirements are increasing, has a PAO to FI2 ratio, say, less than 150, um, then at that point, if we've excluded infection, uh, we would start uh, corticosteroids. Uh, so both in patients with sepsis and in ARDS, the decision to treat it really is not based on a serum cortisol or an ACTH stim test. So the caveat is, is what is the value of uh, serum cortisol and the stim test? So I think there may be some other circumstances where you may want to do this test uh, one that comes to mind uh, is uh, patients, for example, patients who fail to wean. So these are not patients who are septic or, or no longer ARDS. Uh, there is a randomized controlled study published from a, a, a Chinese group in the Blue Journal which showed that patients who uh, had a, uh, a cortisol less than 15 or a, or a delta less than 9 uh, seem to respond to uh, glucocorticoids, i.e. they were weaned much more rapidly. Uh, similarly, there's data in the literature that suggests that patients with cirrhosis, and these are at high risk of adrenal impairment, uh, that those patients who have an abnormal test, i.e. a baseline less than 10 or a delta less than 9, uh, may respond or, or respond to uh, glucocorticoids. So that the, 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 it's kind of problematic at this time. I think if one needs to, if one wants to make the diagnosis of adrenal impairment per se and not of critical illness-related corticosteroid insufficiency, the best test we have available is a, is a combination of a baseline serum cortisol as well as the delta. Um, it's not ideal, and as, as I mentioned, there are numerous pitfalls in interpretation of the levels, and but it appears that at this time, in the absence of of any other diagnostic test, it's probably the best we have. What is important to realise is that the positive predictive value is quite high. 
So if you have a patient whose delta is less than 9 or cortisol less than 10, there's a high likelihood that that patient indeed is adrenally impaired and may benefit. However, the converse doesn't really hold. So if the patient's serum cortisol is above 10 or the delta is above 10, it does not exclude adrenal impairment um, so that the uh, specificity is, is, is not that, that good. Um, no, I was gonna. I was gonna go back and let you talk about um, what I'm sure is one of your uh, favorite topics. Is could you take a few minutes? Um, and given given the most recent results of the Corticus trial, a large randomized multicenter study, in which they couldn't seem to get the same signal that others have gotten. I thought you had a very articulate analysis of that in these guidelines, and I was wondering if, for our listeners, you might spend a few minutes talking about uh, your opinion on this this uh, hot area. So, you know, obviously from what I've said before, um, uh, you know, I'm making a suggestion, um, the recommendation to use steroids in both septic shock and ALDS, which, which goes somewhat against the findings of the Corticus study. Uh, and based on the Corticus study, uh, many clinicians are in fact now reluctant to use steroids and consider a glucocorticoids uh, contraindicated. Um, however, um, although Corticus was the biggest study published to date, uh, I, I believe uh, that the study has a number of limitations uh, which which weren't uh, clearly addressed uh, in the in, in the uh, presentation of the data and the publication, and I think the most important reason is that I don't think that clinical equipoise exists uh, uh, or exists at that time, particularly in Europe, so that most clinicians felt that glucocorticoids were beneficial in patients with septic shock and were therefore reluctant to enroll their patients into corticus because they thought that it was ethically unsound. So as a consequence, it appears that there was a significant selection bias in the study in that patients who were enrolled in the study were patients in whom their physicians thought weren't at high, highly likely to benefit from glucocorticoids. So this changes the, the signal and resulted in a, a significant selection bias. And I think this is manifest if one looks at the uh, general makeup of the patients, that the predominant, most of the patients in a corticus were surgical patients, and um, uh, most of these were patients undergoing emergency surgery, uh, and the source of sepsis was predominantly uh, abdominal sepsis. So the, these patients differ quite significantly from the uh, previous or all the previous sepsis studies, uh, which uh, in which the predominant uh, source of infection was clearly the lung, accounting for approximately 60% of patients. And I think we all agree that the management of medical sepsis, i.e., pneumonia, uh, and the management of intra-abdominal sepsis is clearly. Are quite different in that intra-abdominal sepsis, the major factor determining outcome is a primary source control and management of the infection. So I think that these are significant limitations to the Corticus study. Um, 
so that it becomes really difficult uh, uh, if one bases decisions just on corticus. Uh, if one kind of looks at the direction of the signal, there have been 10 randomized studies conducted in patients with sepsis. Uh, all of the nine of these ten studies show a either a benefit or a trend towards a benefit. Uh, Corticus is the only study which, in fact, goes uh, in the other direction. So obviously, you know, it's still a very controversial area. Uh, there are problems with all the previous published studies. What I think is important is the way we dose patients and uh, the way uh, uh, the duration of therapy. So clearly we know from previous data that high-dose glucocorticoids, um, uh, really uh, high single dose or short courses of 24 hours, really were not associated with uh, an improvement in outcome uh, and indeed were associated with uh, complications. And I think this is best manifest uh, by the MRC uh, study in head trauma patients uh, the CRASH study uh, published in Lancet uh, in which use of corticosteroids was associated with an increased mortality. But what was not really uh, appreciated is that, that these patients received massive industrial doses of glucocorticoids, uh, the equivalent of over 100,000 milligrams hydrocortisone per day. So clearly high-dose uh, glucocorticoids, which have profound immunological effects, really, uh, I don't think, have a role. However, physiological stress doses, and now we're talking about dose between about 200 and 350 a day, and this is really equivalent to the amount of cortisol that a maximally stimulated adrenal gland would make in a highly stressed individual. So this is not pharmacological doses. These are physiological stress doses. And it's important to, sh to note that when one uses these stress doses, one doesn't completely switch off the immune response. It appears to downregulate the production of pro-inflammatory mediators, but one still maintains cell-mediated immunity and Th1 uh, uh, T-cell function without also having a profound effect on the compensatory immune response. So I think the dose is really important, and one should note that in the ODDS-NET study, they used uh, approximately 700 milligrams of hydrocortisone a day. So I think what we've come to realize is that the dose is critically important in that a lower dose, about two to 300, will prevent an exaggerated pro-inflammatory response will downregulate the pro-inflammatory mediators without having a significant effect on um, adaptive immunity. The second issue, which is even more controversial, is the duration of therapy. Uh, recent data suggests that patients who have recovered from a severe sepsis or ARDS, in fact, have elevated levels of pro-inflammatory cytokines which continue uh, being elevated despite the fact that they've clinically improved uh, so that levels can remain elevated uh, for up to a uh, uh, time of discharge, which may be three weeks. Uh, there is a very interesting provocative study recently published by Derek Angus's group, 
uh, looking at the genomes data in patients with severe community-acquired pneumonia. And again, they demonstrated uh, that there was persistent elevation of IL-6 up until the time of discharge. And what was most interesting is that increased IL-6 levels at the time of discharge was predictive of uh, mortality at 90 days. So therefore, it appears that the pro-inflammatory response may actually go on for some period of time, and then one may need to give a more prolonged course of steroids. Now, obviously, this is still theoretical. However, there seems to be an anomaly in the way we treat patients with septic shock and ARDS. You know, we believe that it's a similar problem of uncontrolled inflammation. Patients with sepsis we generally treat for seven days, whereas with ARDS, we treat up to 21 days. And that doesn't seem to make logical sense. So uh, what appears may, you know, at, uh, at this time is that it may, it may behoove us to treat these patients for a longer period of, of time. Um, one should note that in, this is, uh, this is unpublished data from Cortic, has actually demonstrated in the patients who received steroids, uh, which was for five days, they had a very short taper, that this was associated with a rebound of uh, IL-6. So that it appears that the duration of therapy may have been inadequate. This may be one of the other problems with Cortic's. So, there are kind of two options. The one is to follow IL-6 levels, uh, which clearly at this time is not clinically practical. So what we may then elect is in, in patients who had a severe pro-inflammatory response, we may want to treat them with corticosteroids uh, for a longer period of time, maybe 14 days, and then taper. But clearly this is, is still controversial, a theoretical, and not based on, on, on uh, good uh, randomized controlled trials. One of the, one of the questions I, I thought I'd let you sort of conclude the interview with is, uh, having, as someone who spent a large portion of your career thinking about this, how do you think or do you think that this issue will be clarified over the next five years or so? Just sort of off the top of your head, or, or uh, how would a randomized trial be designed in a fashion better than cortica so that we might have some more clarity, or do you feel it's a limitation of how the disease is still being defined? Yeah, I think obviously, I think this is going to be a controversial topic probably for the next 10 years, but I think what we need to do when we do, do additional studies is to measure inflammatory markers such as IL-6, NF-kappa-B, IL-10 uh, as, as some surrogate marker of, gluc of, of uh, glucocorticoid activity. The problem is we, we really have no way of measuring glucocorticoid activity at the cellular level. So we may use surrogate markers which give us some idea of the, uh, the, the exuberance of the inflammatory response so that you know, it's possible that markers such as IL-6 may be useful in predicting uh, response to therapy, or even measuring NF-kappa-B and NF-kappa-B, uh, maybe uh, intranuclear. So I, I, I suspect that, that the debate will continue. I think in order to resolve this issue, I think we, we need to do better markers. We need more markers of uncontrolled inflammation, uh, particularly cytokines. Um, 
uh, and I think th that's probably uh, the way the way to go. One last comment, because I know this is something else that you've I've read articles you've written about was there did seem again to be a signal about the um, suboptimal nature of Atomidate in in all of this. And did you want to talk about that? Yes, obviously Atomidate does complicate the issue quite significantly. So I mean, there are two points. Firstly. Um, both in Corticus and in the Anand study, a significant patient, number of patients received Atomidate, which does uh, clearly confound the whole issue. And there is recent data which categorically and conclusively demonstrates that Atomidate does actually cause adrenal suppression for up to 24 hours. Uh, so obviously this then becomes somewhat of a, a catch-22 and a diagnostic dilemma uh, Atomidate appears to be one of the uh, safer drugs for uh, rapid intubation. So if you have a patient who's septic and requires uh, uh, intubation, Atomidate is often used. Now, clearly, the Atomidate will suppress adrenal axis function, uh, which one needs to bear in mind. Uh, so, you know, whether one should automatically use glucocorticoids when you use Atomidate, that, that remains unclear or one should use another agent. But clearly, th there's no question Atomidate suppresses uh, adrenal function for up to 24 hours, uh, which makes this a very complicated issue. Well, Dr. Merrick, um, this was a, a very, very important article that your team published. It must have been very difficult to gain consensus in certain areas, but we really are very grateful that you could be part of the podcast today to share some of your thoughts with us. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Richard. And I, th I think the bottom line to realize is that you know, one has to keep an open mind that our guidelines are, are not you know, carved in stone, and uh, clearly things will, will change. This concludes our podcast for Monday, July 21st, 2008. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. A new email subscription service will let you know when new podcasts have been posted to the SCCM website. Visit www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. Critical Care Medicine is the official journal of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. The prevention of venous thromboembolism is one of the largest patient safety initiatives in the United States. Join the initiative to prevent this often fatal condition in critically ill patients by increasing your knowledge base. Attend the Society of Critical Care Medicine's SCCM latest event in the Clinical Focus Series, Venous Thromboembolism, to be held September 4th to 5th, 2008 in Boston, Massachusetts, USA. Integrate new knowledge of venous thromboembolism into your practice. Visit www.sccm.org for conference details and registration information.